The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. There is uh, one week in October which uh, some of the Buddhist world uh, treats as uh, Earth Care Week. It's not enough to have an uh, Earth Day, but uh, to have a week that uh, we focus a little bit on Earth Care. And um, so this is the week. And so when that happens, I'd like to try to give some talks on this topic of Earth Care. And as I was thinking about it today, I was thinking about what if the earth was a um, the size of a beach ball and it kind of floated kind of right here like in the middle of the room or we went out you know to a nice field someplace and it's just this amazing thing happened there's this beach ball this beautiful blue and white ball that's kind of luminous as long as the sun shines on it and um, and it's um, all this life on it, all this water that's moving and clouds and so you see the forests, you see the snow-capped mountains, you see the oceans, and lakes, and maybe if you get really close, I don't know how much you could see, but it's like you know this. If you look out into space beyond it, there's nothing like it for many, many light years around. And if that beautiful pearl-like beach ball was hovering there with all the people on it and animals and plants and everything, I think we would treat it as a miracle. We treat it as something profound and wonderful and very meaningful, something we want to protect, something we want to care for. And um, and then we might remember that uh, we live on that planet. That's ours. And it's our home. And uh, more than our home, uh, it's in a sense you can say we're in that beach ball. But we are, in a sense, we are the earth. It isn't that we're like, you know, visitors to the earth. We didn't actually come from, I don't think we came from outer space and got planted here. We, we come out of this earth, we're born from the earth, uh, we are part of the earth. We re- you know, we can't even say we return to the earth when we die because we are, we're already earth, the natural world ourselves. And from a Buddhist analysis, um, that the natural world, the earth that's around us is the same earth and world that's within us. The Buddha was quite explicit about that. He said that uh, it's in this, for him, the Buddha, you find in this phantom long body of ours that's what I call the world, what's inside here. And he used the word world for the world around us as well. So there's these two worlds that we live in that are one world, really. And, um, and I, you know, certainly I, if I saw that beach ball floating here, I'd have a certain reverence for it, awe, and appreciation. In the way that sometimes I do if I go to the beach and look out across the ocean or in the mountains I look at these beautiful vi- views and this summer I slept, um, four nights I slept out without any tents, just in a sleeping bag, on a ridge in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And it was a full moon in July, and it was spectacular to be laying there um, in the full moonlight, laying there. Uh, occasionally I had to take my sleeping bag and cover my eyes because the moon was so bright. 
And then uh, one night I got up at two o'clock to walk to the edge of the ridge, and and uh, there was so much uh, moonlight you could see these uh, coastal uh, Santa Cruz mountains kind of one after the other in a row, going in the valleys going down towards the ocean, and uh, it was kind of um, awesome, kind of inspiring, and and uh, that we should live in such a place and to be able to experience this. And I didn't want to come back and sleep in my bed anymore. <laughs> And um, but I was a single parent this summer, and my s- child was at home, so I had to come back. And um, so there's a wonderful term uh, that I, you know, came across recently: biophilia, uh, love of life, and um, reverence for life, perhaps. And some people have it, and some people don't. And uh, it's a lot harder to have it if we are disconnected from the natural world, if we live, you know, in, inside of four square worlds, uh, walls most of the time. They say that in the United States, pe- people spend 90 per- 90% of, what th- of the time people spend, they spend indoors. That's a big chunk. If you sleep a third of the time, that's, you know, already maybe 30% or so. But um, and um, but if we can spend some time outdoors, and California has a lot of beautiful nature, just locally right here, spend that time outdoors in it, and a very different relationship to the world happens than if we spend our whole day indoors inside of walls, on screens, and even if indoors we love nature, lo- love the world, love the earth, and have reverence for it in the abstract. At least for me, there's a whole different experience that happens when I'm actually in, just walking in some of the local uh, uh, preserves right near in the hills here. And um, and I do feel a kind of reverence for it, care for it. Uh, we have in the local park here in Edgewood, uh, there's a lot of deer. And I don't know exactly the ecology of deer and how good the deer are for the park. And they seem to be growing in number. And but um, you know they're kind of used to people, because you know people are pretty much just stay on the trail. You know, you're supposed to ask the rule, stay on the trail. And um, and um, so the deer don't hardly seem afraid of people. And uh, you know you come across a deer ten feet away, and it just kind of you know these beautiful deer eyes look at you. It's quite something to see it. And um, I wouldn't want to harm the deer. No, I wouldn't want to see anything. And you see the deer with its little fawns. And the last thing I want to do is to kill it or to harm it in any way. And um, when I was about 20 or so, 21, I lived on a small dairy farm that had five cows. And um, they were my girlfriends. I, I, you know, I, I love these cows. And back then, uh, you know, there was, I would go out in the fields and get them every uh, every evening, bring them back and milk them. They'd stay indoors for the night and then send them out in the morning and milk them twice a day. We'd get up early in the dark and milk them. And um, and uh, there was a you know a real sense of connection to it. One of the great experiences at that time in my life was being present for the birth of one of the calves. And, um, and to watch uh, the calf come out 
I'd never seen a birth before. And uh, I don't know if this is standard for in cows, but um, it came out with its you know feet first, the front feet first, and the head kind of all together, kind of poking out. But there was this um, sheath around it, a bag or something. I can't tell you what it was. I don't know the, bio- the biology, of it, the physiology of it. But a sheath around it, and you c- it was kind of transparent, and you could see the um, eyes through it. And the eyes were kind of cl- were closed. And as far as I could tell, this was a, you couldn't tell there was a living animal there. And, um, and then, um, I guess it had, had these little hoofs, right? So at some point it pushing and it broke that sack, broke whatever that film was. And, um, and so it suddenly got ripped open and, and re- uh, revealed the head and then the eyes opened. <laughs> it just came alive. It was alive before, but there was something about those eyes opening up and and uh, most of the calf was still inside the mother. And uh, it was quite remarkable to see. I wouldn't want to kill the cow. I didn't want to kill the calf. I would, not, I would have nothing to do with that I, at all. And um, many years ago when I was thinking about vegetarianism, and I've been a vegetarian pretty much my whole adult life, but one of the little tests that I had around it was... Um, um, would I eat a chicken or a cow or a pig or something if I was the one who had to go kill it? And I said, no, I mean, I I couldn't kill it. I wouldn't be able to. And so if I can't kill it, do I want to eat those animals? Let someone else do the killing? And how often are we disconnected from what goes on with animals? It's kind kind of a feeling about the living being that we're, you know, involved in if we're eating it. Um, and uh, the way that uh, animals are treated in the United States. It's one thing for us to have five cows on this beautiful dairy farm in the fjords of Norway. It's spectacularly beautiful. And, you know, and, uh, but to, you know, factory farming <coughs> and the way these chickens are all herded together and mass, mass murdered, it's quite something. So to have this beach ball world that we live in, that we're part of, and, um, and to have biophilia and care for it, um, and feel responsible for it, feel care for it, feel something for it, you know, that we want to take care of it. That's why it's called Earth Care Week. And I think it's one of the most beautiful instincts or, or impulses of human beings is the impulse to care, to care for each other, care, care for others, to care for the world, to care for life itself. And uh, that movement of care, I think it's actually some, somehow I, uh, I these days uh, feel is more, I have more reverence for it than I do for compassion. I see that compassion is one variation of care, caring. But caring takes a lot of forms besides compassion as well. And, um, and caring, I think, is, you know, in there for each of us in our hearts and our being and to care for this world, take care of it. And um, there are people these days who are quite distressed about the state of the earth in terms of the environment and climate changing change. People who feel a lot of distress, a lot of grief, and a lot of anxiety. Some of it's paralyzing to some people. And some people who just don't know what to do with it and are running around in circles and uh, pretty upset. But, and uh, some people feel there's no point to do anything 
because um, you know we only have a few decades left and everything's everything's going to be extinct humans are going to be extinct it's all coming to an end um, and um, so I don't know the science of it exactly I'm not a you know scientist and I can't really speak for it but um, I've been interested in this area, topic of environmentalism since I was in college. I was an environmental science major for a while, so it's been a keen interest of mine. And uh, and some of the doomsday scenarios that are being told now were, were told um, 50 years ago. And uh, and now the evidence seems to be stronger and stronger. And some of the scenarios that came out then are coming true now. So, you know, this, a lot of this was known for, for a long, long time. And um, and then um, I studied environmental uh, studies at UC Santa Barbara. I was at this UC University of California uh, University in 1972, which was only a year or two, a year and a half after its big oil spill down there. And that was quite something to be there and still feel the... It was not so much so much in the beach anymore. A little bit it was there, but it was just you could still feel it in the atmosphere and the people there and everything. That this had gone through a major trauma, in uh, with this huge oil spill and they have oil wells down there off the coast. And um, probably that influenced me a little bit to go into the field of environmental studies. But um, so there's people, you know, a lot of people, a lot of news about this, and there's all kinds of relationships to it. Some people ignore it. Some people want to deny it. Some people say, well, there'll be a technological fix. We'll figure out something. We always do, somehow. Um, and, uh, or some people are just, it's too much. And, uh, you know, they just turn off and get numb. Some people uh, uh, just feel n- really numbing anxiety or fear or distress around it. And why bother doing anything? because it's all going to go to hell anyway, so why do anything at all? Why not? And I, I read, there's an art, it was a long article that went around the Vipassana world um, uh, that went through by a journalist connected to the Vipassana teachers and who had a long, journal, a long article about all the science that she had gathered together to make a really convincing case that it's getting really, really bad, what's coming. And then she ended the article by saying, um, um, well, it's all going to hell, going to hell, basically, and um, you should uh, live your bucket list. <laughs> Literally, that's what she said. I was just stunned. You know, I was reading this whole thing. I, th- I was kind of like, wow, this is quite an article. Wow. It's and then, you know, what's, where, where's, it, where's it taking us with this? Do your bucket list. <laughs> go, you know, go on vacation and do different things. I don't know what. And uh, and have a, uh, form some groups of people you can share some of the feelings that you have of what's going on. And I was kind of stunned by uh, someone who was so well informed and been studying this for decades would end up with such a, a to me depressing or discouraging kind of scenario. The image I have is um, maybe it is hopeless in a hundred years. Maybe who knows? I, I have no idea. Maybe it's all going to be over. No, we have 100 years left. So, why do anything? Why bother? And um, so, I had the summer, at some point. I think I talked talked about it here. Um, I, f- I found a injured squirrel outside our door. 
and I, it was kind of like more stunned. It didn't see any injuries. It just was stunned. It was laying there. It wasn't moving hardly, but it was clearly alive. So, you know, what do, what do I do? What should I do with this squirrel? I, I could explain to it, you know, it's in a hundred years, you know, it's all, it's all going to be extinct. It's all over. It's done. So I might as well just leave you there <laughs> to die. I don't think, you know, the squirrel was, you know, for the squirrel, it matters that it lives. <laughs> you know, now it makes a difference for that squirrel to do something. And so, what I figured—I didn't know how this how this worked—but I figured out the uh, the uh, SBCA has a whole wildlife uh, department specifically to care for wildlife like this. And they said, put a cardboard box over it, and we'll come out. And this amazingly compassionate young man came out. And, um, and he was so tender and careful. By the time he came out, the squirrel had much more revived and was, you know, was kind of was able to move a little bit. And, and uh, he was just so tender and careful and packed it all up nicely and said, what are you going to do with it? And he said, oh, when it's injured like this, we don't know what happened to it, but there's a chance it's gotten you know, some kind of injury, maybe infected. So we'll take it back for two weeks, give it antibiotics, and then we'll release it somewhat close to where we pick it up. Wow, that's nice, I thought. So, that the contrast between giving up, because in a hundred years something's going to happen, and that's, that, that little squirrel, that squirrel made a difference for the squirrel that we took care of it. It'll make a difference to your neighbor if they're sick and you go take care of your neighbor. It'll, be, it'll make a difference to the poor communities of California, Central California if the Bay Area can figure out how to create less smog that gets carried down into the Central Valley. It'll make a difference to those children who are growing up there for the next decades or something. They're alive now. It makes a difference for them. So the idea of giving up uh, doesn't make any sense. The idea of being so frantically upset and not know what to do and just rushing around and going around and spinning around or something. I don't know if this is a fair image, but I had this image of someone who's... Um, um, maybe it's a poor mix of metaphors, but waiting for uh, at the train station for a train to come. It always comes at four o'clock. And this person's there half an hour early. And the person's kind of pacing around the, the train station, completely anxious and nervous about the train. Is it coming? And when's it coming? And just kind of like making everyone on the train station nervous by all their, this person's nervousness. When they're, you know, it's, that's a, you know, why? Why be so nervous about train is coming anyway? Why not <coughs> to do something? And the image included, and another person comes, and the person comes and sits on a bench and is so calm and so tranquil that um, the person uh, affects everyone around them and everyone calms down and uh, changes their lives. I thought of that little story because I, I was told the story today of a Zen master that I studied with in Japan in the 1980s. Now he's 80. And I had never heard the story about how he got started in his Zen training. He had grown up in, um, <coughs> in a Japanese Buddhist temple. His father was a temple priest, Buddhist priest. But he rejected it. He had no interest whatever in it and didn't have any respect for it at all. And, um, and he was, I don't know how young he was young, but I don't know what that means, teenager or early 20s. 
And um, he got onto a, a bus station. There was a lot of people, a lot of people crowded, and all these people were crowded into this bus. And he kind of had to make it all the way to the back of the bus to get a seat. And the back of this bus was an old Buddhist monk sitting there, and he was reading a book. And the Buddhist monk was uh, had, a, had a radiance of tranquility and luminosity and peacefulness that he'd never seen in anyone. And it was in such contrast to the people in um, all the everybody, everybody else on the bus who seemed all kind of, I don't know what they were like, but um, they were not that way. So when this, uh, the old, uh, there was this old, he was a Buddhist priest and monk. The old monk got off the bus. This young guy got off the bus and followed him and followed him back to the monk's temple. And when the monk went into his uh, temple, to the temple gate, he, he didn't go in. But later he came to join him and became his student. And now is one of the great Zen masters in Japan. And um, so, what does the world need at this time? What does the planet need? I think it needs what it's needed for hundreds and thousands of years. It needs people who know how to find that peace, who can represent that kind of care. It needs people who can care for each other, care for the planet. Even if the world wasn't going to hell in a hundred years, it still needs us to care for it, for care for each other, to care for this world with care, respect, have reverence for it. And to be able to, and to have representatives of people who know how to be at peace, know how to be uh, tranquil, know how to inspire people in a whole different way of living. So that uh, it's kind of like we all can share living in this world as if we're, you know, on the ridge in Santa Cruz Mountain on a full moon night, and looking down across the, the rolling mountains going down and seeing the pristine um, elegance or beauty or reverence of that scene. So here's an example. In, uh, it's, a, it's a Zen story of what it might look like uh, in this very small kind of way that represents something much bigger. Well, what it would look like to live in a different way that maybe the planet needs us to do these days. There is um, two Zen monks were traveling and they were going visiting a monastery. They were going to check out a famous abbot, maybe to be a student or study there for a while. And, um, and they were kind of on the road going up towards the monastery. And next to the road was a creek that came down from the monastery. And as they were walking past this creek, they saw a single lettuce leaf floating down the river, on the creek. And uh, it clearly had come from the monastery. And clearly it was, you know, an edible lettuce leaf. And, um, and the two monks looked at each other. This is not the place where we should go study. If they're, if they're that careless with their resources, they should not do this. This um, Zen teacher, I'm going to jump, come back to the rest of the story, but this Zen teacher that I studied with in Japan, who I told you about, and followed the guy home, now one of the great Zen teachers in Japan, um, uh, I was in his monastery and I was in the kitchen one day and uh, we were, I don't know how many, four or five of us were cleaning up after a meal. And um, he came through the kitchen and he looked into the sink where the pots had been cleaned. And in the little drain were 
three or so strands of udon noodles, noodles. And he said, he, he kind of like showed his displeasure that that's where they were. We can't waste anything, he said. And he reached down and pulled up the noodles and ate them. And um, that's caring for the world in a certain way, not letting anything be wasted. So then, um, so the story of these two monks in the lettuce leaf, we can't go, we're not going to go to that monastery. If they're that careless in that monastery and don't care, they let the lettuce kind of, you know, be wasted that way and get away. So that's not for us. But then they saw us, and another monk from the monastery was running down the creek and came down and ran after the lettuce leaf and picked it up to bring it back up to the monastery. They said, oh, this is the place where we should study. So I love that story, that, um, that uh, somehow the care of the resources, care of this world of ours, not wasting anything, um, rearing everything is actually one of the great values that we have. And nowadays, there's a lot of uh, ecological arguments for not wasting the resources. Um, consumerism is a dangerousism um, that uh, doesn't do much good for our planet and doesn't do much good for the people who have bought into the consumer religion, the consu- consumerists. Maybe none of you are consumerists. You just occasionally buy things. But, uh, but the whole message of the religion of consumerism is a message of uh, s- selfishness. It's a message of desires and greed and a, a message of ignorance and not paying attention to what's going on. And um, Buddhism really is te- uh, here to teach us the opposite. It teaches us uh, to be selfless. It teaches us to have a few desires, not be caught up in the world of desires. And um, it teaches us to... Um, um, to be harmless, not to cause harm. Are those values important in this world of ours? How important are they? Is this something we want to train to do? Or this is a way to become the kind of people who can be c- care for that beach ball that's floating there and, and hold it up and care for it with reverence and care? What is your equivalent of a, lo- of a lettuce leaf? That you let, or, or udon noodles, that you just kind of like that doesn't really matter. Doesn't you know? You just let it drift off and throw it away and not care for it. Um, I don't think consumerism has made many people happy and fulfilled. But there's such a strong pull into that world for so many people to have, to have, to have. One of the radical things to do is to consume less. But I think that's what's really needed as well. Um, I needed another shirt, short sleeve shirt. And um, so the way to consume less and to have less of an impact is to go and buy used clothes. And this shirt here was bought at a second-hand store. I'm very happy with it. Don't I, isn't it look okay for a Dharma teacher to wear this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I did well. <laughs> $7. That's pretty cheap. 
how much do you think I saved? How much does a kosher like this normally cost? You think, I don't really know. I'm not really a consumer. What? I don't know. It depends on the brand. You know the brand. Oh. <laughs> the... Um, Oh, so, so it's not much of a savings? I didn't get a good deal? <laughs> you didn't get the brand. Oh, I, did, oh, I, I, I should have gone... I, I, I'm supposed to go after the brand? Oh, I didn't realize... I didn't understand that. I guess I blew it? Oh, well. But I think I saved some money. The point being that um, uh, it's not so difficult to consume less, to be more frugal, to have less of an impact. But this is what's interesting about it is um, there is savings in consuming less. Don't save that money unless you really need to. Make a savings and then take the money that you saved and donate it someplace that makes a difference. Use the money you saved and then buy something else maybe you have to buy, but choose the green version of it, the one that has less impact even if it's more expensive. Start using your, using your savings and your money in a way that begins moving more and more in the direction of ha- walking more lightly on this planet, having less of an impact. Will it make a difference? It's just a few people doing it. It'll make a difference to the equivalent of a squirrel. It'll make a difference somewhere. Don't don't kind of look at this, the total picture. Oh, it's hopeless. I'm just one person. There's five million or some people here in the Bay Area. And, you know, they're all driving cars. And, you know, nothing makes any difference for me to make it. You know, if I just do drive my car less, so what? You know, it's not going to make any difference at all. So I might as well drive with impunity. But you don't know what difference it makes. Maybe it'll make a difference to a squirrel somewhere. The other day, driving up here, um, a little raccoon ran in front of my car. And luckily, I think I was lucky, I wasn't driving very fast. I mean, the raccoon was lucky I wasn't driving very fast. Because, you know, I, I saw it, I kind of slowed down, I thought, I'm, I'm, I'm sure I hit it. But when I looked around behind, it was not, was not, there was no evidence of that. Let's get away. But if I had been hurrying a little bit more, or been more interested in getting somewhere fast than paying attention to the road, I probably would have hit it. My driving a little more carefully made a difference to that raccoon. So don't underestimate the impact that you can have on this Earth Care Week. It makes a difference. And the person who's going to make the most difference to, I hope, is to you yourself. That uh, you're all here at a Buddhist meditation center where kind of, I'm assuming, that people who come here are interested in an inner change. Somehow they believe that meditation has some value. Meditation has to do with transforming our inner life in important ways. And if you really want to care for your inner life, your heart, the way you'd care for that beautiful beach ball of the, of the earth, um, caring for the earth is one of the ways to care for yourself. You'll benefit as much as you, maybe more so than if you do things for the world. So this is Earth Care Week. So you might, at least for this week, give it some thought.
that this is a good week with there's other people around in the Buddhist communities who are also kind of caring for this week and thinking about it. And, um, and uh, I hope that uh, you do more than just save a squirrel. So um, we have about 10 minutes. So if anyone wants to make any comments or questions or have uh, some kind of report about something they've, that they've done that, uh, to care for the earth, uh, it might be a lovely time to hear something. Yes, if you can take, is there a mic by the stage? You have to push the button on the middle, on the side, so the green light comes on. Can you hear me? Yeah. Uh, is it, it might not be on. Is the green light on? And okay, yeah. it's on so now. Hold, hold it like Can this. Okay, okay. Yeah. 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 So I just recently started taking on that practice, and um, I'm line drying my clothes instead of using my dryer, and um, I ended up maybe spending five more minutes by doing that. Um, since we all live in California, it's pretty convenient to dry our clothes outside. Um, I stopped using paper towels. <laughs> My husband was like, we need some. but And I realized that you can just use rags, right, that we have and to wipe. And we're so used to using paper towels that, you know, we really don't need it. And so I decided to refrain completely from buying paper towels and just forcing myself to get into the habit of using, a t- using mm-hmm. rags. Um, started uh, not using plastic bags as well, not completely, but to the extent I can, I stopped using plastic bags when I buy vegetables. Like when I go to farmer's market, I would take a plastic bag and to fill my vegetables. But instead I would um, reuse bags. Now I rinse them, I reuse them. Um, so there are actually a lot of ways we can help contribute to this. Next yeah, thing I'm going to yeah, do yeah, is try yeah. to ride my bike instead of. It takes driving. a little bit. It takes a little bit of work to think about it, but some, once 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 you figure out some of these things, it's second like nature to do them. Yeah. I've I've uh, I've gone grocery shopping for vegetables and fruit and bring with me from home the compost compostable green bags that we use to collect the compost. That I bring the new ones, right? And I use those, and then when I come home, I have I, you know I'll use them for compost anyway. Yeah, and I ended up sharing it on Facebook and. Now a lot of people are adopting the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyways. And these things add up over time, especially if a lot of people do them. Someone else? Thank you. <coughs> I've, been, I've become more conscious of, um, of washing clothes and the fact that I don't have to always wash something because I wore it one time. I'm, I wear it more than one time. So if you don't want to sit near me, that's okay. All right, <laughs> 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 other comments? Any kind? Any questions? Anything?
I've been trying to raise consciousness at my office with recycling. People just aren't doing it at all. And um, I met with a lot of hostility, so I wanted to ask if anybody had any suggestions about what to do about the reactions. Yeah, that's a hard one, how to, how to deal with hostility. But I think that um, maybe those are not the people you should try to change. But maybe you could uh, invite them to go for a hike with you in the local park. And, uh, you know, or spend a little bit of time outdoors. And, and uh, I think the idea of getting more people connected to the natural world, and so they love it, this biophilia. I think that uh, it's very... Uh, you don't want to shame people. You don't want to... Uh, you know, make it a big obligation and, and about the, what they're doing. But if somehow, ideally, you somehow or other uh, help people or tap into people's love and uh, delight and appreciation of the natural world. They feel a connection to something because we tend to care for what we love. And, uh, and so what can you do to kind of cultivate love for the natural world, for what goes on, rather than uh, a sense of uh, guilt or something around it? obligation around this. Straight back. Um, On a similar note, I work in a flower shop and it's me and my boss and she... When we're processing the flowers, we'll just dump like plastic and rubber bands into the compost bin, and it's driving me insane. And I don't know what to do about it. And I'm constantly trying to like move things around, but I don't know like once there is a certain amount of plastic in the compost bin or whatever, like how I don't want to have to dig through it, but sometimes I do. Mm-hmm. Like I so I don't know. Just similar on a similar note, like I don't know how to bring it up to her. It's it's all about efficiency maybe, you know yeah, like maybe maybe you don't bring it up at all but you just uh, start take pulling the plastic out i do, i mean i do <laughs> calmly happily do it and then yeah. she'll see it after a while and after a while she'll if she's into efficiency it's not efficiency to have to be paying you to be pulling yeah. it out <laughs> maybe she'll get the yeah. message after a while Um, so I'm pretty new to Buddhism, so forgive the ignorant question, but, um, I, I'm trying to get educated and I took a class the other day and a Tibetan nun told me that there is no oneness in Buddhism. Like, that's just not a concept. And, uh, it was in the context of the Heart Sutra and emptiness and stuff. And I, I, I guess I'm just hoping to hear any words of the Buddha that would, contradict that (laughs) or help me feel that feeling again because it really like hit my heart and the bottom dropped out and and uh you know my concepts of oneness and and connection to others come from yoga vedanta and and uh native american spirituality and and this is what i'm trying to invest in so i'm I'm hoping to hear some words yeah i mean these are uh to someone to say it like that uh tends to be a little bit dogmatic and um, philosophical and narrow-minded. I think that uh, 
the experience, uh, uh, actually kind of almost like a mystical experience, experience of, very deep experience of interconnectedness with the world, with other people that can be experienced in a, not a conceptual level, but a heart level, uh, is one of the ultimate uh, experiences a human being can have and is appreciated in Buddhism. Except, uh, what, what Buddhism says about that, though, it's, it's important and valuable, um, but it's, um, it belongs to a certain domain of life that's different than the domain of liberation. The liberation belongs, has to do with um, um, a, a radical independence from that interconnected world. And the art of it is to be able to hold both as being profound and reverent parts of life. Uh, to to over, overemphasize interconnectedness is to miss something out. To overemphasize this independence, maybe what the Tibetan nun is emphasizing, mi- uh, leaves something out. But um, to, to be able to hold them both together and, uh, and respect and, and see each of them in their own domain as being very important and valuable that's that's I think where the the um, the specialty of the of Buddhism is to do both, and um, <coughs> and in Zen they kind of ha- they kind of in terms of oneness, in Zen they kind of express that with the saying, not one, not two. So it's not you can't you're not really just not oneness is not quite right, but you know diversity is not or twoness is not right either. Or another way they say it in Zen is mergings, merging of difference and unity. So what's that? <laughs> and so, but uh, but yeah, uh, 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 interconnectedness is a, and the emphasis on compassion and loving kindness and there were teachings of dependent arising. There's a lot of teachings in Buddhism that emphasize interconnectedness. But more important than the teachings is when you really do a serious Buddhist practice it'll open up into a world of profound interconnectedness. You can't help it because as we practice deeply, the, se- the self-centeredness, the way in which we are caught up in ourselves, uh, that makes boundaries and barriers between us and others fall away. And then you feel this kind of open connectedness that to others that's so thorough that you don't really feel there's a separation. But that, uh, as profound and wonderful and ultimate as that is in a certain kind of way, that's not the final purpose of Buddhism. So, so, but the, uh, the final purpose doesn't negate this profound experience of interconnectedness. It supports it. So do I understand you right that I don't have to choose between feeling connected and, and developing this, this independence and emancipation? And I think ideally, in my world, ideally you would really uh, understand the, the world of interconnectedness and, and uh, move through that. And, underst- and in knowing it so, understanding it so well you would find the door to what's independent with, through it, not f- away from it. And then they can live together, be, be, uh, be mutually supportive. So to go along with your interconnectedness, it's great. Thanks. That, that helps me support the earth. <laughs> <laughs> great. So um, <clears throat> thank you all. And I think it's time. It's a, yeah, he's been here before, and it's a little after nine. So I think that uh, Jim can come and ask, talk to me afterwards if you want. So thank you all.